The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is The Intercession of the Spirit. The Intercession of the Spirit, Romans chapter 8, particularly verses 26 through 27. So we now have been working through Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. It's been a great blessing, a tremendous blessing to take encouragement, to take instruction from the great eight, the eighth chapter of this tremendous letter. And those who have been justified by God, before God, through faith in Jesus Christ, they've been given a hope that does not disappoint. Ours brothers and sisters, is a hope that does not disappoint. It's not going to cause us shame in the end. It is going to be fulfilled. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint. In other words, it's a certain hope. It's a sure hope. It's not wishful thinking. And we know, we know that it's a hope that will not disappoint because Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The Holy Spirit himself is the guarantee of our hope. He is the pledge or the deposit of greater things to come, much more to come. We've been given the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of much more that is to come. No more sin, praise God, no more death, no more disease, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain. For the former things have all passed away, And the one who is enthroned in glory is making all things new. The sons of God will take possession of the eternal kingdom in union with Jesus Christ, and we will have unfettered communion with the triune God in eternity. The Spirit of God, our pledge of great things, much more that is to come. All that made certain to us through the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is the pledge or the down payment. Until that time comes, until those hopes, the blessed hope of the church is finally fulfilled, our present experience in this life is going to be characterized by what Paul describes as groaning. In our text, it's a groaning within ourselves, a groaning for deliverance from remaining corruption, a groaning deliverance from the pervasive defilements of sin. A groaning while persevering through adversity, persevering through difficulty, suffering, tribulation, adversity, all while we eagerly await the fullness of our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. When all of that takes place, when after you and I have suffered together, having suffered with Christ, the Bible says, we shall be glorified together with him. That's what we're looking forward to, a glorification together with him. Our groaning is then accompanied in our text By the groaning of all creation, the entire cosmos, the entire created order groans together with us, groaning in anticipation of deliverance from its bondage to corruption, a bondage that it's been subjected to unwillingly in futility. And the groaning through which the Spirit of God himself makes intercession for us in in our weakness. Now, it's this groaning. It's this groaning that is associated with the Spirit that is going to occupy our attention this morning as we consider our text, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 27. And we're going to do that under three headings. First, the problem. Second, the provision. Third, the promise. The problem, the provision, and the promise. Now, first, in our text, 
Paul references our problem. I want you to hang in there with me and consider this. He does so, he references our problem through the use of the word weakness or infirmity, depending on the translation that you're reading. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Now it's here in verse 26 that Paul draws attention to the problem. The problem is our weakness, our infirmity, particularly our weakness in not understanding how to pray as we ought to. The Greek word is asthenia. And the word communicates incapacity and inability. It communicates feebleness or frailty. We are weak. It specifically carries the sense of a lack of power. Again, incapacity or inability. We simply lack the strength. Though the word is sometimes used of sickness, it's often used of disease. It's most frequently used to convey that issue or that that idea, that concept of feebleness or frailty, incapacity. And all of that is contrasted with power. I wanna give you a couple of examples of that. It's important that we understand the usage here because this is gonna have an impact on how we understand and apply this text, okay? So let me give you some examples. Romans chapter six, verse 19, Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness, the asthenia of your flesh. In other words, Paul says, I'm using these terms, I'm using this language, Romans chapter six, because your own flesh, in your own flesh, you lack the capacity to understand it any other way. So Paul uses terms that he's sure that we can understand considering the weakness, the asthenia of our flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter two, verse three, Paul says that he was with the Corinthians in weakness, in asthenia, in fear, and in much trembling. Now, Paul isn't referring to physical weakness, although Paul Uh, his physical weakness might have pointed or painted a picture of his overall weakness or general weakness. Paul isn't referring to his physical weakness as though Paul was trembling with fear over his circumstances. He's scared of his circumstances in Corinth. He's not talking that way. He's not thinking that way. Paul is speaking of his spiritual weakness, his spiritual incapacity, his inability to do that which God had called him to do, which was to preach the gospel to those saints in Corinth and for people to be converted, Paul is incapable to accomplish that which God has called him to accomplish. In that sense, he's with them in weakness. Do you see? In fear, fear over the weight of what he's doing, in trembling. He trembled over the weight of the work, in other words. And in the very next words, we see that weakness That inability, that incapacity contrasted with the power of God. Verse four, Paul says, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom or of human power, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And again, on the one side, if you think with me about that, on the one side, you have human weakness, human incapacity, human inability, human persuasiveness, human wisdom. And on the other side of the ledger, you have God's power, God's strength, God's capability, God's wisdom. In a word play, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 43, our earthly bodies are sown in weakness 
Think about the weakness of our humanity, the frailty of our own humanity. And they are raised in power, raised in the power of God. Again, human weakness, human frailty contrasted with the power of God. It is sown, it says there, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Human weakness contrasted with the power of God, not necessarily weakness as associated with sinful flesh, but weakness just associated with fallen flesh, right? We're weak, we're frail, incapacitated just by virtue of being born into a fallen world. We see the effects of sin ravaging the world around us. And just by the, 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 the fact that we've been born into a fallen world, we suffer under weakness, suffer under frailty. Sometimes that is directly associated with our sin, but often just associated with life in a fallen world. Many are out today sick because we live in a fallen world, right? Uh, many have difficulties. Many are weak. We are weak, incapacitated because we live in a fallen world. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me give you a direct example here, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in a text that directly applies to the issue we're facing in Romans chapter 8. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter 12, that we find this word, asthenea, most closely employed in the same way that it's employed in Romans chapter 8. The word, again, speaking of our human incapacity, is in direct contrast, being used in direct contrast with God's power or God's strength. In 11, chapter 11, verse 29, Paul asks, who's weak? And I'm not weak. There's our word, okay? Who's made to stumble? And I don't burn with indignation. If I must boast, Paul says, I will boast in the things which concern my weakness, my infirmity. Now drop down to chapter 12, verse 7. And here's an example, okay? Paul says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Or better, a thorn for the flesh, or a thorn because of the flesh. That thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to beat Paul down, lest, Paul says, I be exalted above measure. The, the purpose of the thorn was to humble Paul, was to humble him. The word there for thorn is the Greek word scallops. And he's referring to something that is like a tent peg or a stake. In other words, this is not that type of thorn that when you were little, your mom pulled out with the tweezers. Paul didn't think of it that way. This was like a stake in his heart. This was a dagger. Paul doesn't say specifically who or what the thorn was. That's obviously intentional. We, we all have thorns to deal with, don't we? Whatever thorn you may be dealing with, large or small, we all have thorns to deal with, circumstances in our life, situations in our life that cause pain, that cause suffering. And that's a thorn that we have to deal with. And so this is a lesson that we can apply in our own experience. Paul doesn't tell us specifically what it is. But Paul says in verse 8, concerning this thing, I begged with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Take it from me, Lord, three times. And he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness strength and weakness. Man's incapacity, God's power. What is, if you think about this with me, this was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet Paul. What's Satan's perfect purpose in all of that? Satan's purpose in all that is to destroy Paul. Destroy Paul, cause him to apostatize, dishonor God. Satan's purpose is nefarious. It's malevolent. In the face of that danger, 
Is Paul capable of preserving himself? No. Paul has no strength, no capacity to preserve himself against that danger, very real danger, right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? But greater is he that is in the world than you. <laughs> We're weak. We're, we, we are incapacitated. We need help. Paul needs help. So what does Paul do in this situation? He runs to our heavenly father. He casts his cares upon him because he cares for us. He runs to him for help in his time of need. He didn't respond with bitterness, didn't respond with complaining, didn't respond with resignation. This is my lot in life and I'm going to have to deal with it, right? Didn't respond in any of those ways. Didn't respond with despair. No, he followed the Lord's example. Think with me. He followed the Lord's example and just like the Lord prayed for God to remove the cup from him three times, Paul prayed three times to the Lord, Lord, please remove this thorn from me. Just as the cup was not removed from our Lord, the thorn was not removed from Paul. And God has a purpose in all of that. God promises to work all things together for our good. And Paul simply doesn't know at this point what that purpose is. What is God's purpose? To strengthen Paul, to mature Paul, to humble Paul, and to display his own power through Paul, through Paul's weakness. Paul responds then, in a biblical way, in a godly way. Therefore, he says, most gladly, verse nine, I will rather boast or glory in my own weakness. There's our word again. I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, Paul says, I take pleasure. That's an odd way of thinking, isn't it? He's not taking pleasure in the infirmity for the sake of the infirmity itself. Paul's taking pleasure in what God does through the infirmity, what God accomplishes in him through his own weakness. Paul glories in the Lord. Paul glories in the Lord. He takes pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, insults, slander, gossip, in needs, physical needs, temporal needs, circumstantial needs, in persecutions, in assaults, even to the point of death, that word means, in distresses, mental distress, emotional distress, for Christ's sake. He takes pleasure in those things for the Lord's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See the contrast between the two. Paul's incapacity and God's power. Back in Romans chapter 8. In verse 26, now, a proper understanding of the use of this word, weakness, in its context, would lead us to think in terms of human weakness human incapacity, human powerlessness, not simply sickness, that's the point, not merely disease, not merely human weakness as we're not strong enough to lift something, right? But in terms of our incapacity and all of that set in direct contrast with the power of God, what God does when he comes through with power in our time of need. We are weak, we are incapacitated, in the face of infirmities, in the face of our own reproaches, our own needs, our own persecutions, our own distresses, all of which are guaranteed for the Christian, right? He who desires to live godly for Christ in this present age will suffer persecution. We're guaranteed all of that, but he is the omnipotent God. He is the powerful one. We are the weak ones. 
and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, by his grace, the very same exceedingly great power which God worked in Christ when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that same power is at work in us who believe. Now, your English translations will either translate that word weakness, asthenia, will either translate it in the singular or translate it in the, in the plural. Your translation will either say weakness or weaknesses, infirmity or infirmities. Both ideas are true and acceptable, right? Both are true. He helps in our weaknesses, all of our weaknesses in a general sense, any weakness that we face. And it's also true that he helps in our weakness, what I think this text is pointing to. We're going to talk about that in a moment. We're certainly plagued by infirmities in a general sense. We are incapacitated in a general sense. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That's a testimony of our weakness, right? Our incapacity. Apart from the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. He is the the parakletos. He's the helper, and we need all the help we can get. So we are to flee to God for help in all of our weaknesses, And what we do not have in and of ourselves, he provides us through his grace. And it's by him, Paul says, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. He strengthens us in all of our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he he was tempted in all points as we are. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The problem is our weakness. The problem is our incapacity, our powerlessness. Apart from him, we will certainly perish in the way. But it does matter here in our text whether Paul is speaking of various infirmities in a general sense, plural, or whether Paul is speaking of infirmity, singular, in a more specific sense. And I would submit to you that Paul is speaking here of our infirmity, our weakness, in a very particular sense, in a very particular way. And the principle of our fleshly weakness is applied in that very specific way. In context, brothers and sisters, we're being asked to do something here in our text that we're incapable of doing. We have no capacity to do that which the Lord is charging us to do. We've been saved in hope, verse 24. Now, in hope, we eagerly await the adoption, the redemption of our body. That hope sustains us. That hope, as we've seen, serves as an anchor for our soul. It's a hope that is both sure and steadfast, Hebrews chapter 6. And so it's a hope that certainly helps us. It's a hope that certainly sustains us, but it's a hope that won't preserve us. It's a hope that alone cannot preserve us. Verse 25, we hope now for something that we don't yet see. It's in the future, it's in the distance. And that which is necessary, if you and I are to finally see it, is perseverance. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. We're to eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Verse 25. That perseverance involves steadfast faith. Steadfast faithfulness to the end. A patient, enduring, steadfast obedience to the Lord through all of the trials and tribulations of the Christian life. Through infirmities. Steadfast faith. 
steadfast faithfulness through reproaches, through needs, through persecutions, through distresses. How confident do you feel you're going to make it on your own? How confident should you be that you're going to make it on your own? Not confident at all. (laughs) Not confident at all. This is something that we simply cannot do apart from a work of the Spirit. There's not an example in the Bible of someone who persevered in faith apart from a work of the Spirit. No one perseveres apart from a work of the Spirit. The hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 isn't a testimony of what people have done through their faith. The whole of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is a testimony of what our great and powerful God does through the means of the faith of his people. Do you see? We don't make it apart from the Spirit's help. We don't preserve ourselves. Our salvation, start to finish, is all of grace. All of the grace of God. Verse 25, we hope for what we do not see, eagerly waiting for it with perseverance. That hope helps us, that hope sustains us, it encourages us, but we are incapable. We're incapable of even laying hold of that hope as we ought to. My grip, your grip on these things will not bear the weight of your own weakness. You won't last. That's the truth of it. And it's often a testimony of our own ignorance that we don't realize it. We act like we got this. I can live perfectly fine in my own strength and I can go day in and day out as though there were no God to rule over me. (laughs) I look like a practical atheist. We think we got this. You don't have it. And that's proof positive you don't have it. (laughs) Proof positive that you're not going to make it. My, how soon we forget. My, how quickly we wander. (laughs) I need help. You need help. Verse 26. Hope encourages. Hope helps. Verse 26, likewise, or in a similar way, the Spirit also helps. The Spirit helps in a very particular way. The Spirit helps in our weakness, singular. And we must persevere. And it's in this specific manner of our perseverance, particularly our perseverance in prayer, in which the Spirit also helps in our weakness. Look at Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 1, verse 19. Look there with me. Paul says that it pleased the Father, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. And by him, by Jesus Christ, it pleased the Father to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Notice it doesn't say that you reconciled to him or that you reconciled yourself, he has reconciled you to himself. He has done this, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. All of that he has done under the condition that, verse 23, you indeed continue in the faith 
grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, we don't often like conditional statements when we come to Christianity or biblical theology here. Listen for a moment. Grounded and steadfast are terms applied metaphorically to a building, right? The first word there, grounded, referring to a foundation. The second word there referring to a structure that's being built. Perseverance, our continuance in the faith, is a test of the reality and the genuineness of our faith. Faith is built on a ground, a foundation, and the structure that's being built. Like a building that is built on a strong foundation, like a building that is built up with the support of buttresses, strong supports, we're not to shift, we're not to move away from the solid ground of the gospel that was preached to us. Having heard, having believed, having turned from sin to follow Jesus Christ, we are to persevere. We are to persevere, persevere in the faith. He who sets his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Do you see? We're to persevere. A test, a mark of the genuineness of saving faith is that it continues, is that it is preserved, it's persevered. One commentator said this. He said, if it's true that the saints will persevere to the end, that's true, If it's true that the saints will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. And that's why the warning is given. If indeed you continue. Brothers and sisters, if you've put your hand to the plow, if you've turned to Jesus Christ in faith, we are charged with sticking to it to the end. Persevere in faith. Don't turn to the right hand or to the left. Don't turn back. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ to the end. There are many, Christendom today, professing evangelicalism is full chock full of professing Christians who go to church on a Sunday morning, profess Jesus Christ, live like the world the rest of the week, who made some profession when they were 12, live like the devil from the time they were 12 to 38, and believe that they're in Christ, having already turned back, already turned back to the world. Paul says, you are genuinely reconciled if indeed you continue. One of the marks of genuine saving faith is perseverance. It's in this way that perseverance is a test then of the reality and of the genuineness of faith. You say, you may say to yourself, I'm too weak to persevere. I'm too weak to remain grounded and steadfast. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. That's the right attitude. You're getting at the heart of it. The hope of the gospel may help us, may sustain us, but it's the spirit of God who comes through with the strength that we need to face infirmities. It's the Spirit of God who comes through with God's power to preserve us through reproaches, through needs, through persecutions, through the distresses that we'll face in the Christian life. It's by the Spirit of God alone that we're going to persevere to the end. Back in Romans chapter 8, our weakness then, our weakness, the weakness that Paul is describing in this text With respect to a steadfast faith, our weakness is the specific problem addressed by Paul in the text. Our inability to preserve ourselves. And that inability to preserve preserve ourselves is marked particularly by our inability or incapacity to pray as we ought. Where's our strength come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. Prayer 
is the means, is a means through which God dispenses his strength to help us in our time of need. And we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. Can you see the weakness, the singular weakness that Paul has in mind when he speaks of our incapacity in contrast with the power of God? We don't even know what to pray for as we ought to pray. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, in our weakness, for we, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. If we're to persevere to the end, who is it that preserves us? Who is the one who designs every trial? Who is the one who ordains and decrees every affliction? Who is the one who is sovereign over every single one of your circumstances? We can't peer into the counsels of the Godhead. We're not given that knowledge. We can't always know his good purposes. Job, when Job was afflicted, Job didn't understand what was going on. Job couldn't go into the, Job wasn't there in heaven, so to speak, to hear the conversations that were taking place. We can't know all of his good purposes. We may even at times sinfully question whether or not they're good at all. And we have no strength in and of ourselves with which we can see ourselves through it. And yet we don't even know how to pray as we ought to. The problem that Paul introduces in verse 26 is a very serious one. It's very serious. We have a great need. We have a great need. And that need is only exacerbated by our ignorance. We don't even know what to pray for as we should. Paul doesn't say that we don't know how to pray. It's not what Paul is saying, that we can't bow our heads and say words, right? He's not referring to the method of our prayer. He's not referring to the mechanics of prayer. He's referring to the specific content of our prayer. We do not know what to pray for as is necessary, as is appropriate is what the word means. There are things in our need, the danger that we face, the difficulties that we face, our own weakness. There are things that demand our attention. There are needs that we have that we must have if we're going to make it. And oftentimes we don't even know what they are. We don't give them the weight that they deserve. We don't pray for that which is most necessary. We don't often know them. He's not referring to our incapacity to utter the words or to utter words in prayer. He's referring to our ignorance. The ignorance of the words that we should be uttering. We too often fail to recognize the demands of our circumstances or the demands of our weakness. Paul is speaking of the specific example of prayer in the experience of the beleaguered suffering saint as he faces trials and tribulations in the Christian life. You're going to face, if you're a Christian, you're going to face affliction. You're going to face difficulty. These difficulties come in various shapes, forms, and sizes. And in those difficulties, you need the power and strength of God. Those circumstances, there are demands that are imposed for your perseverance in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those difficulties. You can't even articulate them. You can't even understand them. And we are in great need. We're in great need. If it's left up to you, what's going to happen? You're going to fail. 
You're not going to make it. You're not going to persevere. You're going to turn back. We turn all the time. We complain and turn away from God. Something offends us and we get wrapped up in our pride. Right? All the time, these things happen to us. They happen to us in our weakness. In our weakness. And in those circumstances, the ignorance or the darkness of our own minds, the frailty of our own flesh, we don't even pray as we ought. He's saying we don't even know what we really need, what is actually good for us or necessary to the situations that we face, necessary to our growth, that which is necessary to our maturity, that which is necessary to our joy, and that which is necessary to our perseverance. A chief example of this is the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A chief example. Paul wanted that thorn removed when that thorn was serving a good purpose. Paul prayed that the thorn would be removed when that thorn was serving a necessary purpose. A necessary purpose to what end? A necessary purpose that Paul might be humbled and that Paul might persevere to the end and be saved. God knows and we don't. That's the issue, right? That's the issue. James reminds us that often we ask for things that we don't get because we ask amiss. <laughs> we ask amiss. It's our own lack of understanding, our own incapacity for spiritual knowledge, the weakness of our own faith sometimes. And all of that becomes a, a burdensome infirmity a burdensome weakness that works against our perseverance in the faith. If that's our problem, our weakness in prayer, particularly our own weakness in persevering through suffering, enduring through trials and tribulations, then consider with me then God's glorious provision. Consider God's glorious provision. The provision of the Spirit himself as he intercedes for the saints in prayer. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit helps. Sunanti lambanamai. There are three parts to that compound word. I want you to listen to what they mean. Sun means with or together with. Anti means on behalf of or for the sake of. And lambano means to take or to lay hold of. The Spirit, the sense of the word is essentially this. The, the Spirit takes hold of a burden that someone else is carrying and he carries it with him on behalf of him for his sake. That's what that one, that singular three-part compound word is pointing to. The sense of the word is essentially taking up a burden on behalf of someone else and carrying the burden with them to come to their aid. The only other place where this word is used in the New Testament is when uh, Mary and Martha, the Lord, are in Bethany. Uh, if you remember that, that um, account from Luke chapter 10. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. Martha is doing all the laboring in the kitchen, getting ready for the meal. And Martha comes to the Lord and says, Lord, please tell Mary to sunanti lambanamai me. <laughs> tell Mary to help me. In other words, Martha's not saying, I don't want to work. I'd rather sit here, tell Mary to do the work. No, she wants Mary to come alongside, to come alongside, to lift the burden with her and to help her see it to its completed completion, right? She wants Martha or Mary to help her, 
to pick up the burden with her. And again, once again, the, the concept then with the word is not passivity. Martha doesn't come and say, I don't want to do any work. Please have Mary do the work. Martha's expecting to labor. Martha is laboring. Pick up the work with me. The word conveys the sense, conveys the sense of the Spirit of God lifting the burden that is upon us and helping us as we labor with it, as we carry it. He comes to our aid. He comes alongside of us. There is no let go, let go and let God in the Christian life, in other words. There is no passivity. There's no room for passivity here. The Lord uses the means of our own effort and the Spirit of God works through that effort to help us. Namely, the Spirit's use of means in this is our own prayer, is our prayer. Now, in what way does the Spirit then help in our weakness, in this specific weakness that we're talking about? He helps with respect to our ignorance. He helps when we don't know what to pray for as we ought. He intercedes for us in such a way that makes up any lack that is due our weakness. Where we are weak, the Spirit comes through with help, comes through with God's power to assist us, okay? That's what the Spirit does to help. Now, Paul deals first with the nature of this help in verse 26, the nature of the Spirit's help. Verse 26, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting our adoption. And the Spirit himself adds his voice, as it were, to ours in our prayer. He takes up the burden, whatever it is, and he bears it with us. That's how he helps. And there are two, there are now two, who make intercession for the saints, if you think about that. Right? Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for the saints, and now the Spirit intercedes for us, making intercession for the saints, verse 27, according to the will of God. Now first, he makes intercession for us with groanings. These groanings are the means through which the intercession of the Spirit is expressed. His intercession, the Spirit's intercession is expressed through these groanings. In the words of Dr. Murray, these groanings define the content of his intercession. Now, I want you to think with me about this. Uh, this is going to be somewhat difficult. I want you to think carefully, okay? Follow through with me. Hang in there. The Spirit doesn't need to communicate with the Father through groanings. The Spirit doesn't need to communicate with the Father in that way. Verse 27 the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. He knows. And it's not the Holy Spirit who has a weakness in communicating as he ought to. Who has the weakness? We do, okay? Who is the one with the weakness? We are. It's the struggling believer. Now, additionally, verse 27, it's God the Father who searches our hearts. He's not searching the mind of the Spirit. He's saying that he, searches, he knows the mind of the Spirit. He searches our hearts. So it's not, listen, it's not the Spirit himself groaning to communicate with the Father when we can't even speak as we ought. He searches our heart. He sees our own groaning, and it's a groaning that is produced or authored in our hearts by a work of the Spirit. Now, follow along with me with this. What is meant by this? Let me give you an example. We don't have time to go there, but listen to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Listen. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Who is it who is crying out, 
Abba, Father. According to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, it's the Spirit. He has sent forth the Spirit of his sons into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Is it really the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father? No, we cry out, Abba, Father. But who is it, who is it, who produces that cry in the heart of the believer? It's the Spirit of God who produces that thought, that sensed experience that we have as children of God, who produces that cry in the heart of the believer. It's by a work of the Spirit, by a work of the Spirit, that you and I cry out, Abba, Father. And it's in that way, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that the Spirit is said to cry. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. It's the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That clarifies it for us, doesn't it? Romans chapter 8. Now, the believer is given a sensed experience of his status as a child of God. That sensed experience of his status as a child of God is given to him authored within him by the Spirit of God. And that which is described as a cry of the Spirit is in reality our own cry. It's in that same manner, in that same manner, that the believer is given a sensed experience of their great need. By the Spirit, we have a sensed experience of our great need. And what do we then do when we come to a sensed experience of our own need, we groan. Do you see? I need help. I don't even know how to pray as I ought to. I don't know what I need. Lord, you know. Help me. Right? Help me make it. I'm tangled up in my head. I'm besieged by pride or lust or anger or whatever it is. Help me, Lord. I don't even know how to pray as I ought to. And what does the Lord do? He looks on our weakness with sympathy. He pities us in our weakness. The Spirit himself given to us to intercede. Those groanings, that desperation, that need authored in the heart of the believer by the Spirit himself such that we groan for it, not even knowing what we need. When you hunger, when you thirst, when you long, when you long for those things, that's not authored in your own heart by yourself. You don't, you're, that, the source of that longing, the source of that hope, that need is not you, your own heart, your flesh. It doesn't come from you. That hunger, that thirst, that longing, that desire, all is produced in you by a work of his spirit. Do you see? And it's through that desire, through that hunger, through that thirst, through that need that the Spirit himself communicates, intercedes for us. It's through that need, through that longing that the Spirit intercedes. Those are spirit-wrought desires, spirit-wrought longings, heart-wrenching yearnings for God to help and to work in our lives and in our circumstances. When we don't even know how to pray as we ought, we can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't even know how to pray as I ought. Help me in my, t- in my time of need, right? Help me. Groanings, desires, longings that are simply too deep for words. We don't have words with which to express them. But it is the groaning of our heart and that groaning of our heart produced by the Spirit of God in his intercession for us. Sometimes we find the words to pray. Right? We find the word. Particularly, we can find the words to pray in Scripture. and We learn how to pray and... We become more and more mature in our prayer, but oftentimes, 
many other times, can't even express my own heart, my own mind. All we can do is groan, right? It's through these groaning desires that the Spirit makes intercession on our behalf. When I don't have the words, He always does. (laughs) And even when I have the wrong words, He has the right ones (laughs) because He always intercedes according to the will of God. Even when I long for or pine for things that wouldn't be good for me, like take this thorn from me, right? Like Job, release me from all of this, right? Or the Lord, even, in the garden, release, remove this cup from me. When we pray for things that we want that don't ultimately serve the purposes and the glory of God, God is good in not giving them to us. He always intercedes for us according to the will of God, and God always responds with that which is for our good. Second, these groanings are unutterable or unuttered. In other words, we're not expressing them in words. The groanings are not expressed in any kind of audible, articulate, or intelligible speech. This rules out any case for tongues. They're unutterable, so stop trying to utter them. (laughs) That doesn't mean that they're devoid of content. Or that they are devoid of meaning. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced the groans of your own heart, those deep longings, of those, those, those desires, that desire of your own heart, the desire for holiness, the desire for righteousness, the desire to sense and experience of God's own presence with you, the work of his spirit within you. They're not devoid of meaning. We may not understand this means of the spirit's intercession, but our heavenly father, the one who searches our hearts and the one who knows the mind of the spirit, he certainly understands them. He understands them. They are longings. They are desires that are cultivated in the heart by his own spirit who indwells us. Verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. So he certainly understands the content. He certainly understands their meaning. Even when we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And he intercedes with that which even we ourselves are unable to articulate. The Spirit's intercessory work, if you think about that, it helps us to understand the title or the designation given to the Holy Spirit that much better, doesn't it? The parakletos, para alongside kletos, taking up the case, if you will, of another Parakletos, the one who serves as our paraclete, our helper, the one who serves as advocate for another. The paraclete intercedes for us. It also better helps us to understand the likewise that begins verse 26. The likewise that begins verse 26. If you look at verse 23, we who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. We groan within, oursel- within ourselves. And, verse 26 then, similar- similarly, <laughs> in a similar way, the Spirit also helps with our weakness in working through our groanings, as it were, to intercede on our behalf. It's difficult to explain, difficult to describe, But if you're a Christian, you've experienced exactly what I'm talking about. Now, knowing our problem, 
And God having graciously made provision for our need, God comforts us then in close with a gracious promise. Verse 27, a gracious promise. He who searches the hearts, he knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. His help, the Spirit's help, is one according to God's omniscience. God knows. The Spirit helps in accord with God's omniscience. And two, his help is according to the will of God. He knows what's good for us. The Spirit's prayer, the Spirit's intercession is according to the will of God. In our weakness, we struggle in prayer. We often feel as though at times our prayers are hitting a brass ceiling. Find it difficult to express our heart to God in prayer. We don't even know what to pray for. And as we strive to pray, as we labor to pray, as we struggle in prayer, the Spirit himself comes alongside and helps in our weakness by interceding for us through those groaning desires of our own heart. And despite our own weakness, despite our own ignorance, the Spirit's intercession is always and ever according to the will of God. And we have that promise to encourage us. Even when we pray for things that we ought not pray for, or if we pray in ways that are not for our good, the Spirit is there interceding through the groanings, the desires of our own heart, as it were, for that which he knows to be good, that which is in accord with the will of God. Brothers and sisters, we're not able to bear the afflictions that come upon us. We're not able to bear that which will come upon us for Christ's sake. We need help. In the Christian life, it's oftentimes, and I've um, talked to many of you, many of you have talked to me about those times in the Christian life when it even feels at times as though God withholds his power, withholds his strength, with, withholds, as it were, the light of his countenance from you. It feels like our prayers are going nowhere. feels like I'm distant from God. I have this sense of my own weakness, my own powerlessness, and it is a despairing circumstance. Uh, The Puritans called it the dark night of the soul, this distance that we often uh, feel in the Christian life. Even that, brothers and sisters, is meant to cultivate within us a sense of our own need, a sense of our own powerlessness. And in that, God does us good. What are we to do? What are we to do? We are to cry out. We're to cry out, Abba, Father. We're to cry out in our need. We're to cry out when we don't have the words to say, groan, (laughs) groan with the desires of your heart. And God knows by his spirit interceding for you, God knows. In 2 Corinthians chapter one, Paul said that he and those who were with him went through a trial that was so severe that they despaired even of life. Paul thought they were going to die. Paul thought they were going to die. And why was it that God decreed or ordained that particular trial? Paul says, so that they would learn to trust in the one who raises the dead. We have to learn the same lesson. We have to persevere through difficulty. We're going to face afflictions. We're going to face tribulation in this age. Until you die, we know that in this life, uh, we would add one thing to death and taxes that are certain. (laughs) Affliction, suffering, tribulation, difficulty. 
And that, if you're a faithful Christian, is going to come for the sake of Jesus Christ because you're going to open your mouth with, for the word of God and for the testimony which you hold. And when you open your mouth in this wicked and perverse generation for the Lord, you're gonna suffer persecution. That is a certainty. It's also certain that you're not gonna make it through that apart from God's help. You're not gonna make it through that. We need the Spirit's help. Praise God that he comes through for us with power to help in our time of need. When he comes through with power in the context of our own weakness. So what are we to do then, brothers and sisters? We're to respond to that truth, glorying in our own infirmity. Lord, I know that I am weak. With Paul, right? I'm gonna boast in my own infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ might rest upon me. Depend upon him. Cry out to him. Rely upon him. God graciously provides power and strength, enablement through his spirit who is at work within us. Amen? We can trust him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your gracious provision of the spirit who even with our own groaning in our weakness in a similar way comes through and intercedes on our behalf with groanings which cannot be uttered, which travail far deeper than inadequate words and express the longings and desires that have been cultivated there by the Spirit himself. And he comes through with strength in our time of need. We need you, Lord. And please forgive us when so often we forget it. We truly are, in many ways, Lord, uh, ignorant, uh, living under a veil of this fallen flesh, as it were, and need the Spirit's help, need the, Spirit, need the Spirit's intercession. We need your preservation, Lord, if we are to make it to the end. Please, Lord, preserve us according to your word. Cause us, Lord, to persevere. Help us, Lord, strengthen us and keep us. And we know, Lord, that you are able to keep that which we've committed to you until that day, and we trust you for it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.